Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The fog is lifting this morning, ladies and gentlemen, and there are clearer signs than ever that something good is afoot. Notwithstanding the whiners, the lead swingers and the unions that want to stop economic progress in this land, the government appears to have a plan to open up all sorts of things by the beginning of next month. We have already seen the row exploding over the opening of primary schools on June the 1st. Now we're hearing tales of pubs opening, airlines flying and businesses bringing people back to work, just as we hear there were no new cases of coronavirus in London yesterday. Pictures all over the papers this morning show people on beaches around the country enjoying the sunshine, basking in the glow of the hottest day of the year, from Bournemouth to Brighton, from Southend to Tynmouth. Could we have a summer after all? People might be frightened of going back to work, but they're not certainly not frightened of going to the beach, are they? 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, we are joined by Nigel Farage, live from the White Cliffs of Dover, where he is continuing his illegal migrant watch, which is finally being picked up by everybody else. For the past two weeks, the former leader of the Brexit party has been bravely and single-handedly reporting on the scandal from the south coast towns of Sussex and Kent. Yesterday, he discovered that the French Navy is complicit in helping these illegal dinghies enter British waters. Today, we will be asking the same question, and we're going to try and put it to Pretty Patel. When is it going to stop? When is this government going to do something about this ridiculous situation? Nigel Farage has been doing an incredible job, uh, even visited by the police, by the way, to tell him that he'd made an illegal journey to report on this particular situation. Now we are going to speak to him live, right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll be talking about the latest example of lovey hypocrisy. Multi-millionaire Steve Steve Coogan has furloughed his housekeeper and his gardener from his mansion outside of London, so now we're paying them instead. What a prize plank he is. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, and this is why it's Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now let's cross live right now to uh, Dover, to the White Cliffs of Dover, no less, to find a former head of the Brexit Party, former leader of the Brexit Party, now intrepid reporter uh, in the southern part of England, Mr Nigel Farage. Nigel, very good morning to you. Very good morning to you, Nigel. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Can I just first of all start by saying what a fantastic job you've been doing, showing up the mainstream media for what they are, absolutely reporting the truth from where you've been uh, all over the South Coast, from Pet uh, to Hastings to now Dover, uh, to see the police coming to your door to warn you off, to see the French Navy now complicit in what's been going on. Tell us what's happening today. So today is another very busy day. Um, already five migrant, five migrant boats have been discovered in the channel and brought in behind me here uh, by our border force, or should I say, Mike, uh, the illegal migrant taxi service. Yes. That's what they've now become. Uh, virtually everybody now that comes into this country, and bear in mind, it's over a thousand since lockdown began. So there's kind of an invasion 
going on down here. Virtually everybody, virtually everybody that comes is allowed to stay. It's as if on the White Cliffs of Dover here, there's a great big sign saying illegals, welcome. I've been on this campaign really full time for the last three weeks because I want people to know and understand the truth. And your comments about mainstream media. Do you know, national BBC and national ITV simply refuse, refuse to cover this story. It's astonishing. It's not as if it's not a public interest. I mean, goodness me, I put up last night a short one minute 45 video on Facebook. Over two million people have viewed that already and it's rising with every minute. And when you think about it, the one thing yesterday that I discovered, when you really think this through, we have given the French tens of millions of pounds to stop the boats from, com the boats from coming, right? What we witnessed yesterday, what we filmed yesterday, was a French naval vessel escorting a small inflatable dinghy full of illegal migrants. We watched them escorted out of French waters into British waters and then to hand the boats over, literally, to the British border force. And this is going on almost going on almost every single day. And the attempt to stop us filming it was astonishing. The French Navy threatened us and said if we stayed in French waters, they would board us. And no doubt that would have meant a night in the Nick in Boulogne. I didn't fancy that because I'm told the food's not too good. And then we had UK Coast Guard threatening the skipper of our vessel that if we filmed the incident, we filmed the incident because they knew we had a they knew we had a camera on board. If they filmed the incident, when his boat got back here, he could be prevented from working. So you've got both the French and British authorities complicit in this illegal trade and not wanting us to know the truth. And I don't care how many times the police knock on my door. Something's got to happen here. If Pretty Patel doesn't act, doesn't act, there'll be many, many thousands that cross the channel over the course of this summer and inevitably there will be many deaths too uh, and mike do you know something these people that come and, and we we found a boat yesterday with 22 on where they were sort of chanting england england and big thumbs up and great they all think they come into a land of milk and honey many of them to pay off to pay off the fare they've paid to cross the channel will effectively live in slavery for the next several years we should be ashamed of ourselves at every level so i won't stop um, until this stops. No, you're absolutely right, because it's not just about stopping people coming to this country, which some on the left will say you're doing, because it's not about that. What it is about uh, is making sure that these ghastly human traffickers are not profiting uh, from the movement of people from Europe to here. I'm looking at a picture on the front page of the Times today because they've picked up, thankfully, your story. And the picture shows a collection of very healthy looking people, very well fed looking people, uh, women, children, men as well, all with their thumbs up. They all look as if they know uh, where they're coming to and what they're coming here to do. Um, the bottom line, I suppose, Nigel, is what happens to them when they do land on the shore? Just quickly, Mike, that photograph was taken by somebody who was with me. I was on the boat that discovered that boat. We found it at 10 past eight yesterday morning in the shipping lanes. There were 22 people on that vessel, which is about sort of 14, 16 foot long. It was so overloaded they were bailing water out of the back yeah. and we actually we actually we actually contemplated taking them on board our fishing boat because they really were in trouble as it was uh, border force came and got them at about 8:30 yesterday morning when i wrote to the home office yesterday and asked for a list of all the interceptions and all the people that had been brought into dover yesterday they showed nothing 
from 4.50 a.m. a.m. until 2.05 in the afternoon. I was there. I saw those 22 people. I saw the Border Force pick them up and the Home Office haven't even put them in their figures. And my suspicion, Mike, is we're being lied to. You know, last Saturday, they said 90 migrants had come. They didn't even count the 25 that had landed on the beach at Pet in East Sussex. So, so very important to understand. Very important to understand we're not getting the truth. All right. Now, onto your question, where do they go? There are some that come, who come from Iran, who come from very wealthy families, and who, to be fair, are fleeing an absolutely barbarous Islamist extreme regime. Uh, they come, many of them have got money anyway, plenty of money. Many of them have got family. Many of them have got family here. Many others that come uh, finish up working in illegal car washes, finish up working um, in the agriculture sector, uh, finish, up, finish up in drugs gangs, finish up basically. You get the criminal traffickers, bring them in, and then they're in the hands of the gang masters in our country. You know, the other day, about, about five weeks ago in Pet, 27 men, land, 27 men landed on a beach and disappeared into the countryside. You know, they weren't going to go and live rough on the streets of London. They were being picked up by gang masters. It's modern day slavery in many cases. And yet the people in Islington seem to think it's all wonderful. Oh, exactly right. I mean, I was getting tweeted at this morning by people saying, these are the people that help you and make you recover when you go to the NHS. These are the people uh, who are looking after you in your old age. Well, I'm sorry, I don't I don't buy that. Also, I know a little bit about Sussex. You know, I've got a place not far from Hastings and there are reports that I hear from time to time just from local people that they were walking in the woods the other day and there was a three or four people living in a tent in the woods. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with this, but it could well have. Well, it could well have. I mean, we don't know the answers to all of this. I, I, can, tell this. I, I can tell you, one of the next parts of my investigation is I do intend to find out where all these people finish up, where they all go. Um, I heard of a village in Norfolk, a small village in Norfolk, uh, that uh, three weeks ago had 100 new non-English-speaking migrants just parked in their village. Um, uh, you know, I do intend to try and find out where the dispersal is. But for the moment, the priority is to, see, is to stop what is going to be a summer invasion. And Pretty Patel, Pretty Patel, who was taught tougher than any previous Home Secretary, she says that one of the pro well, firstly she says thank you to the French, aren't you wonderful? No, the French are, you know, as I witnessed yesterday, actually escorting migrant boats here. Secondly, she says when we properly leave the EU, namely, namely, we leave the rule book, she'll put in place new legislation. Two problems with that. Number one. Boris Johnson has never been tough on this issue. Boris Johnson twice advocated amnesties for illegal immigrants whilst he was mayor of London. So she may find it hard to get the legislation through, in which case this will be not for years. Secondly, if she does get legislation, get legislation through, that means it's easier for us the 1st of January to return anybody crossing the channel illegally. If she does get that through, that will lead for the next seven or eight months to something on a scale that is unimaginable. Either way, it needs to stop now. And there is an historical example of how you deal with this. Australian called Tony Abbott, good friend Tony Abbott, good friend of mine, great man, Australian Prime Minister. They faced the same problem, Mike. There were boats coming into Australia. Now, they were bigger boats coming longer distances with more people, but the principle is exactly the same. What Tony Abbott said is anyone that sets foot in Australia via this route will not 
be allowed to stay. And do you know what happened? The boats stopped. Boats stopped coming. And if Pretty Patel says to the French Navy and the French equivalent of the Border Force, I'm sorry, we're not putting up with this. The next rib we find in British waters, which we can track has come from Calais, we are taking straight back to Calais. And yeah, sure, it might get a bit rough and tough. The migrants don't want to be in France. They want to be here. Uh, but if she does that, not only will it massively reduce, massively reduce the problem in our country, it'll stop many people going in, 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 into the camps in Calais. So actually, it'd be a win-win. But you have to have the collective will to be strong. And I'm afraid we have a mainstream media, we have a parliament full of very, very weak, soft-minded people who cannot see that by saying, oh, let's be generous, let's be nice, actually nice, actually, they're preying into criminality and slavery. Exactly right, because we need to keep the traffickers out of this country. And it's a bit like keeping criminals out of your house, isn't it, Nigel? If you leave the front door open, somebody's going to come in and nick all your stuff. If you lock it, they're going to go on to the next house. And that's what we want to encourage them to do, because let's face it, if these people, and you're quite right to point out some of them fleeing barbaric, horrible, ghastly dictatorships and terrible situations in the countries from which they come, but there's no reason why they couldn't stop in France and live there, is there? That's right, and, and, and equally... If people, say from Iran, say people from Iran who had been persecuted, who had members of their own family executed for political opposition, I mean, say there were people from Iran applying for refugee status, applying for refugee status in France, we, we, we may well accept some. It's not as if we're ungenerous. I mean, crikey, with Jewish people, Huguenots, many people fleeing genuine oppression. And think about even Priti Patel's family who came from Uganda when that nutcase Armin threatened mm. to kill them all. Always been very fair-minded and so many of those groups who came in as refugees have prospered, have prospered integrated done brilliantly this is not being closed-minded it's not being nasty it's wanting to do things legally and wanting to do things properly and mike can i just leave you with a thought yes that one of the arguments the sunday times sneered at me the other week it's okay i'm used to it but they sneered at me saying nigel farage doesn't understand that we have that we now love all migrants because so many of them are working as care workers, nurses and doctors. All right. And that needs dealing with as an argument. Of course, there are many fantastic nurses, carers that come here from all over the world. But just think about this. You know, if you have a nurse working in your local hospital that comes from Mali, she may be brilliant, she may be brilliant but maybe Mali needs her and her professionalism and her expertise even more than we do. We're dragging in medical staff from countries who probably need them even more than we do. And I think in the long term, the 40% of British doctors in hospitals to be foreign born, I've got an idea. Let's start training some of our own nurses, nurses and doctors. It'd be better for our young people to train in those professions and better for many of those poor countries from whom we're taking some of their best medical staff. And that needs a proper debate. Absolutely right. And as Boris Johnson has said, we need to hire 50,000 more nurses. So let's pay them some more money. Let's hire people in this country and let's get the economy moving faster than we could ever have done uh, before this whole coronavirus hit. But isn't it ironic as well, Nigel, that during a period of time up until very recently, when we weren't allowed on our own beaches, the only people who were on them were the people arriving from France? <laughs> well, that's right. You, know, you couldn't get a P&O ferry into the port. 
<laughs> but if you nicked a dinghy and came across, you'd be happy as Larry. Absolutely. Now, how much uh, are you expecting to do today? Are you going to be reporting in later on uh, as far as your Twitter account is concerned? We'll be keeping an eye on it. Oh, yes. Well, as I say, um, it, it looks to me we've, we've had five boats in already this morning. Um, that may be the end of it, although we have seen some daytime launches. They've actually been launching in broad daylight from French beaches. Where are the French police? I ask myself. There could be some more today. But my main focus today, focus today, is to get back to the Home Office and to ask them, to re-ask them the question. How long have you been accepting the process of handover from the French Navy? Answers on a postcard, please. And number two, why did you lie to me yesterday? When you told me about the number of migrants and boats that had come into Dover, when I was actually on the vessel that discovered the migrant boat with migrant boat with 22 people, and we put the alarm call out at 11 minutes past eight yesterday morning. Why is that not in the figures? That's my job. From a, I'm home office bashing today, Mike. That's my job. Fantastic work, Nigel. Thank you once again for what you're doing. Uh, we're behind you all the way here at the Independent Republic, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Nigel Farage, what a sterling job he is doing down in Dover, watching the, the, the seas, watching the French Navy escorting boats into British waters, as he says, uh, the migrant taxi service being operated by the Home Office in this country. Pretty Patel needs to answer to this. Pretty Patel needs to get a grip of it. And Pretty Patel needs to come on this show and talk to me about what she's going to do to stop this madness. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-mornings with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So there's a great headline on the front page of The Sun this morning, Knowing Me, Furloughing You. Aha! Well, of course, that can only be Alan Partridge. It can only be Steve Coogan. And this is a man, by the way, uh, who has got it in for newspapers, who has always hated journalists doing stories about him. So he will be spitting feathers, no doubt, this morning that the Sun has managed to pick this one up. Let's talk to Patrick Christie's and find out what he makes of it all. Patrick, I mean, we've had some hypocritical lovies in the old plank of the week before. I'm afraid uh, he may have written his way into next week's. Yeah, this is it, isn't it? Despite, as you said, him being worth 10 million quid, he owns a property worth four million pounds and he's furloughed his gardener and housekeeper because it was claimed that get this they couldn't continue working due to the coronavirus social distancing well he must have the world's smallest mansion his (laughs) pool must be about a foot long and his tennis court must have been designed for toddlers or pygmy goats mustn't it because if there's not enough room for social distancing there then i'm not sure what there is steve coogan for his part described this didn't he as a non-story that only came about because of his previous legal action against the tabloids well I've got news for you, Steve, unfortunately. Uh, That's not why they've run the article. They've run the article because you are clearly quite a a hypocritical faux lefty who stuck his hand out so much he's got furlower's elbow and uh, (laughs) clearly uh, hasn't seemed to have got a concept of A, the value of a pound, or B, the true economic hardships of those very people he so smugly claims to be a mouthpiece for. But we know how this ends, Mike, don't we? We know how this ends, don't we, I think? Steve Coogan will help plunge us into a recession and then he'll spend the next 10 years berating the Tories for austerity and cuts. Oh, of course he will, yeah. And this is the point. I mean, I'm afraid the furloughing scheme uh, will come as maybe news to, to, to our friend Mr Coogan was not designed for millionaires to lay off their, uh, their, their servants, by the way, which is what they are. You know, and you would think that if he's got a garden that's big enough to employ a gardener, presumably it's still growing. I mean, why does he need to furlough the guy? Surely he needs to cut the grass every now and again. Well, this is the thing, doesn't it? And this is part of the hypocrisy that we talk about. And I don't throw that word around that lightly. I mean, if he forces his employees to take taxpayer cash, then uh, by default, that means that there will be less money about, really, for, for some of the neediest and most desperate and vulnerable people in, in society. And 
I, I feel sorry for him in a way because I think he's lost a lot of respect over this, but he's also lost his position as the darling of the left, hasn't mm. he? Because, you know, you see Owen Jones and people like that being very vocal about wealthy people not furloughing staff. Steve Coogan, of course, could easily have kept them on and he could have paid them in full and just simply done another free trip around mainland Europe with Rob Brydon and he'd have balanced <laughs> the books pretty easily. Well, exactly right. But this is the thing. You know, I find it quite disgraceful and disgusting that I, as a taxpayer, and somehow are somehow bankrolling his uh, his staff. Yeah, well, this is it. And, and this is the thing, because it ties in uh, again with, with, with Lord Christopher uh, Fox as well, who was obviously uh, in hot water today for, yes. for doing a, a relatively similar thing. Um, but, um, but this, to me, shows how distant a lot of these kind of lovey lefties are, actually, from the people that they, they claim to represent. Steve Coogan, as I've said, described it as a, a non-story. Well, there are people in floods of tears because they don't want to claim off the taxpayer to help prop up their business. They feel guilty. They feel like they're not worthy. They've never taken a penny from anyone in their lives yeah. other than something that they've earned well they are worthy actually and they are the true national heroes not these kind of fake lefties who who like steve coogan in my opinion just want to get into politics so they can boast about it at their next dinner party with hugh grant yes well i wonder what's happened to lily allen actually because i'm now feeling somehow you know uh, mournful and nostalgic about lily allen who hasn't said anything for a while because surely she must be furloughing all of her staff as well mustn't she well, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see about uh, about that one. But um, but no, it's it's just absolutely cracking really for me. The idea that you get these people that that are able to look at themselves in the mirror and do these very worthy articles in outlets like the Guardian and places like that, um, uh, uh, talking about social justice and morality and. And it's that element of morality as well that that, that for me really got the Lord Christopher Fox story that, that came. Yes, so, uh, he, he furloughed himself. Yeah, he clearly furloughed himself, um, and, and also he's claiming <laughs> from the taxpayer despite earning one hundred and sixty-two pounds a day in the House right. of Lords. He's he's got a hundred thousand pounds sitting in his business part, and he owns a property worth roughly two million pounds. Uh, for me, this does. What message does this send out now to a lot of these people that they claim to represent? The neediest, most vulnerable people in society who would frankly crawl naked over broken glass just to earn the £162 a day allowance that he actually gets, let alone everything else. But just on him, Mike, quickly, I had a look at his business. It's called Vulp Advisory. Oh, yeah. And it specialises, get this, in giving people advice on financial matters, major announcements, and then issue management. So, uh, well, his financial matters his financial matters have led to a major announcement and now are going to require a heck of a lot of issues yes. management, aren't they? Well, they certainly are. But I'm quite puzzled as to how this has been allowed to happen because he's basically furloughed himself from a, his job, which is paid for by the taxpayer, in order to be paid for not working by the taxpayer. <laughs> that is up work. It's just nuts, isn't it? It is absolutely nuts. And and clearly, it's the actual arrogance of this because he was interviewed about this and he said that, and I'm quoting here, that he, he hadn't given much thought to, to paying back this uh, this money if indeed he, he feels like he should. Uh, he kind of just put it on the government. And there was something slightly Trumpian about it, the way that, you know, when Hillary was berating him for his tax matters and he goes, well, you shouldn't have let me. There was a little bit of that about this where he kind of said, well, if the government didn't want to pay me this money, then then they didn't have to. That's not the point. If you are the Liberal Democrat spokesman for business in the Lords, 
then what are the Lib Dems really hang their hat on? Well, it's it's moral goodness in an otherwise dark and bleak world, isn't it? But I think what this shows is it's just the classic kind of Lib Dem thing of, of lecturing us all on morality from mm. their gold-plated ivory towers in Knightsbridge. Yeah, exactly right. And this is the trouble. These people who are so used to being subsidised for almost everything that they do. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't imagine that they actually put their hand in their pocket for anything. You know, they get subsidised drinks in the House of Lords. They get subsidised for going there. Uh, they get paid for expenses to go there you know they don't actually spend any of their own money ever no and this is it and this is again a perfect example here with the liberal democrats and this is why brexit won because a lot of these people who are there they're, they're giving it quite large in the house of, house of Lords and kind of people's vote campaign i question what handle on reality they actually have have they ever actually felt the brunt of things like certain pro-eu legislation have they ever actually felt the brunt of a massive global financial crisis do they know actually what it's like to be dare i say it, a common man or woman on the street as it were just desperately living month to month trying to get by well no they don't because when they walk into the house of commons they tap in or the house of lords they tap in and all of a sudden their bank balance goes up by 162 quid do we fancy a spot of lunch darling yes we do well we'll pay we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll bill the taxpayer for that one as well their train trip to westminster paid for by us they haven't really got a clue about normal life no and i wonder how long the furloughing of the gardener and the housekeeper will will last for, for poor old steve coogan because <laughs> One of the suggestions in the story is that, you know, he's not there very much in this mansion because obviously he's got more than one mansion. So presumably he may have other staff that he may wish to furlough at any given time. and He may be revolving the furloughing scenario. Well, the fact is, he's actually going against the government advice on this as well, because the government has quite clearly said that actually you can now, if you've got, you know, gardeners or if you've got uh, various hang on housekeeping staff, and there is a capacity, as there has to be the capacity at a mansion for them to work in a socially distanced fashion, then they should be going into work. So he's actually not just claiming off the taxpayer morally when he shouldn't, he's also arguably doing it against government advice. And I just find this very, very uh, difficult for Steve Coogan, who's known, of course, not to react particularly well to negative press. And I'll no. be very, very intrigued to see what he does now. But but if this negative press, because he's got a difficult choice now, because if he if he backs down and pays his staff, then he admits that the son was right. Now, I don't see how Steve Coogan can admit that the son can bring himself to admit that the son was right. No, he could certainly so, not do that. I no, don't but, know how he's going to play this. Well, I mean, the only time you ever see Steve Coogan talking to anybody is when he's got a new project that he wants to publicise. Uh, for example, if he's got a new movie out, uh, he's all over the place. He talks to everybody. He just doesn't like stories about himself being written because he is such a hypocrite. Well, well, this is this is the thing, isn't it? Where, where people this was always the argument that, that, that went way back when uh, when there were some uh, rather underhand tricks going on, I suppose, from the, from the press. But this was the argument that if you spend your entire life courting publicity and you earn your living, frankly, off popularity and, and self-promotion and a lot of that comes via the media, then you can't really uh, have a, be that upset when, when that goes against you. And I think that's something that Steve Coogan doesn't seem to have particularly got. But like I've said, I mean, with Steve Coogan now, I think he's really, really going to struggle because he is going to have to get back into politics. He's going to want to get back into politics. He just can't help himself because he needs to remain king of the lovies, yes. doesn't he? Well, actually, now I'm sorry, Steve, but you've, you've lost all credibility. And the next time that he opens his mouth, it's going to be very, very difficult for him to do so. And it's going to be a very easy argument provided to the opposition team. And, uh, and this is the issue that he's got going forward, really. I suggest that he just uh, bites the bullet now, admits Victoria Beckham-esque that he, he made a bit <laughs> of a mistake, pays his staff 
pays his staff what they're actually worth. And I'd be very intrigued to find out what they're actually on anyway, to be honest with you. Well, they're probably on minimum wage, I would imagine, or the living wage, no doubt. This is what normally these characters do. But the, the thing I love about their involvement in politics, and I think Coogan was involved to some extent, but certainly Hugh Grant, his big mate, uh, yeah. endorsed about five candidates at the general election in December. All of them lost. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is the thing. And it's not just it's not just stuff like this where financially you can argue or really they've argued for themselves that they're massively out of touch with the, the working man and woman. It's also just politically, isn't it? Because mm. every single time it's like the kiss of death. If Hugh Grant turns up at a politics rally, you are definitely not going to win. I mean, I'm pretty sure Hugh Grant could endorse the only candidate and they still end up losing. So, <laughs> I mean, this is part of the issue where people, you know, it, it is something that that that. When you do make a success for yourself, an absolutely fair play, well done. I think Steve Coogan is a, is a fantastic uh, comic. I've enjoyed many of, of Hugh Grant's films, although he does tend to play Hugh Grant in all of them, of course. But, you know, I, I have enjoyed some of those things. But the reality is, I think you distance yourself from normal people when you surround yourself in some kind of, like, Hampstead-dwelling Waitrose shopping chatterati, mm. you know, and, and I think that's the issue. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Patrick, great call. Thank you very much indeed. Patrick Christie's uh, talking about Steve Coogan, the hypocrisy of the lefty lovies, a man who's got a gardener, a man who's got a housekeeper, but he's furloughed them so the taxpayer can pay them not to work. What an extraordinary state of affairs we find ourselves in. This is why the furlough uh, situation needs to come to an end, because there are too many people, Steve Coogan among them, who are just basically flouting the law, flouting any kind of moral duty, uh, and just being completely unethical about putting people out to grass just so that the government can pay them and you don't have to. Well, you're a multi-millionaire, mate. You should be ashamed of yourself. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The fog is lifting uh, this afternoon, I believe. I think we are getting closer and closer, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to some point whereby we may have some kind of normality returning. There's a lot of people still arguing the toss about not wanting to reopen the schools, not wanting to go back to work, not wanting to drive trains. But there's no shortage of people who seem to be very happy to go to the beach whenever they fancy it. And no doubt there'll be loads of people at the beach right now. Uh, if you are at the beach listening to us, by all means, call us and let us know what you're you're seeing how many people are there what they're all doing are they social distancing are we slowly but surely becoming a more sensible crowd of people because i think that's what we need to think about as we go forward into june the government have basically said that they're going to be doing enough tracking and testing uh, and tracing people uh, in order to let the schools reopen certainly uh, they want to see possibly some bars opening up uh, if they've got outdoor spaces they certainly think that outdoor activities can 
possibly increase. Football uh, may be coming back on. There is definitely a sense that the lifting of the lockdown is well underway, if not in reality, in the planning stages as well. Could we actually have a summer after all? And could we end up being able to fly away to some destinations in Europe or possibly further afield, if we so wish, by the end of July? I think that would be a fantastic, uh, you know, sucker uh, and comfort to people who just need to get out of the house for once in their lives. 0344 499 1000. Coming up in this hour, we're going to speak to Professor Carol Sakura, oncologist and founding dean and professor at the uh, medicine at the University of Buckingham. And we'll find out from him what he makes of the infection rate going down because yesterday we were greeted with the amazing news that there was no new cases of coronavirus in London at all. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Homeschooling is all about tides and how the oceans work today. Uh, We'll be doing that in the company of the Royal Geographical Society. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, our next guest is a man we speak to quite frequently on this show, Professor Carol Sikora. We first spoke to him very start, very much at the start uh, of this pandemic, and the outbreak was very much unknown. Uh, he was very uh, careful in what he said. His words are always chosen very well, uh, and he's a man who is very measured, I think, in his approach to all things to do with the COVID-19 virus. Let's talk to him now and find out how he thinks things are going. Professor Carol, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I must admit, I was very buoyed when I saw the figures yesterday that uh, there were no new infections for coronavirus in London. And it seems to me that there's a sort of geographical move away from London and up to the north and then possibly northeast and the northwest of England. There was, and really encouraging everything, both in London, both around the country and around Europe. If you look at the curve, the number of new cases per day compared with as a percentage of the total ones in the past, it's fantastic. It's right down the bottom, and it's really cheery. Uh, What's happening? Well, there's two partners in this dance. There's Mm. the virus and there's us. We've all changed our behavior. We've changed our behavior, social distancing, bars, restaurants shut and so on, uh, and we're socially distancing. The virus, though, has probably changed its behavior, and that's a surprise. We mm. didn't expect that. It seems to be getting a little bit more benign. Yes. And maybe that's its way of saying, I want to live with you guys, mm. like SARS, like MERS. They're living with us. We, a lot of us have had it. Uh, they cause colds in the winter and so on, but they don't cause the, what we've seen, the, the total destruction of an economy that we've seen. We've got to get back to normal. And uh, I've been trying to, I've been traveling around, you know, the Royal Mail's working full time, the, the trains are working, uh, they've rearranged things, the social distancing. I think it's been a tremendous effort. Yes. And, I know we all love to to bang our spoons for the NHS on a Thursday night, but, you know, the whole transportation distributive business has also been working right through this and fantastic. So it could do it for us. Yeah, exactly right. And so, I mean, is it like a hurricane, if you like? I mean, to try and get my sort of uh, unscientific brain around what you've just described. Is it like when a hurricane hits the land, uh, from my memory of being in America, it weakens because it's basically going over something other than the water where it strengthens. And so if the virus has reached the land, if you like, and is, and is going through the population with every infection, does it tend to get weaker? 
It does, and that's what's happening now. I mean, I, I've looked at the literature of how pandemics end, right from Greek times, medieval times, the plague and so on, the great plagues of the past, and they followed this great Silk Road, the mm. transport route. Now the Silk Road are the airlines of the world. That, it travels first class, this virus, yes. I'm sure. Anyway, uh, basically, uh, how does it end? It just peter, They all just peter out. Mm. And you, it, they only end when society says, it's over, we're going to the bar, we've had enough of this mm. and an analogy for returning to normal society and getting away from the fear people are still frightened um, you know you go into London and you see people uh, just living in a sort of fear world mm. crossing the road and so on the, some of it's justified some of it's not and we've got to overcome this to get back to normal we've got to get the schools back I was really disappointed my old college at Cambridge University yeah. is shutting down for a year this, this is no time to make statements like that by all means shut till September yeah. they are anyway because it's holiday time right. for the students but to shut for a whole year for distance learning it's, it's, there's no, we don't need to make that decision now we can get nearer the time to make that if it's still going on yes. but it won't go on Exactly right. And also, I mean, for all of the fear that you talk about, there's clearly quite a lot of people who are not fearful of going to the beach because yesterday we saw some record <laughs> numbers of people out and about. And I can't say I blamed them. And there was footage that I saw on the news of people carrying pints of beer around. And it would have, I mean, if you if you had literally arrived from Mars, you wouldn't have thought it was any different to any other bank holiday weekend. You know, I've not been to the beach, but I've been down the river at Cookham, up the Thames. Oh, it's a nice part of the world. There's even an ice cream salesman there. Fantastic. Mm. So I bought some Mr. Whippy or whatever it was. Fantastic. Yeah. Did you get a 99 flake stuck in it yeah, as well? I did. Well done. Definitely. <laughs> I think that, we've got Summer is officially open then in that case, if you can do that. But this yeah. is the thing. I mean, I mean, people are critical of the government for giving out mixed signals and for frightening people in the first place. But I still say that we needed to shut down when we did. We needed to do that sort of drastic action, if for no other reason um, than to make sure that the NHS was not overwhelmed, which it wasn't, but also to, 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 to get people's minds around the fact that this could be quite a dangerous thing. Absolutely. And it's so easy to criticise after the event. Mm. You know, they had to plan for this surge at, Chris, at Easter that could have completely eradicated all healthcare delivery if it had gone badly. But it didn't go badly and it was saved. Now we've got a plan to get the NHS back to work for cancer and heart patients. But on top of that, one of the disaster scenarios, which I still see from our friends, the epidemiologists, we like to, to joke about, uh, is that there'll be a second wave in September and that'll run to winter pressures in our health service mm. and it'll be doom and gloom again and a second lockdown. I don't think that's going to happen and the rest of Europe don't think it's going to happen. They won't release the data to have a look at that and I'd really like to see the data because it's affecting planning for cancer patients. Yeah. I'm an oncologist, mm. so it is affecting my patients uh, because no one, we do have to assume that it might happen. It is, a, it is possible and and therefore, we have to prepare critical care facilities. Yes. But let's plan for the worst, but hope for the best. And yes. let's get moving again. And is a second peak always of necessity worse than the first? Or is it less less bad? It, it varies. It was mm. with the swine flu in 1918, the great, the great influenza epidemic. Mm. But 
I think this is different. This is this virus is something's definitely happened. Mm. In Denmark, there's a leading group that just published yesterday the, the serum, the, the serum, in, the state serum institute, which is the immunology centre in Copenhagen, mm. and uh, they looked at what's happened in Denmark, the opening of the land border with other Scandinavian countries, and they've seen absolutely no increase in infection. Uh, and so they've come out of lockdown. Sweden never went into lockdown. And there they are. They're, they're, there's no second wave. There's yeah. no a massive surge of the virus. So something's happened to this virus. Maybe mm. it doesn't like the summer sun. Maybe it doesn't like the beach. Yes, yes, that's possible. Although I've just seen a story today saying that Sweden has now got the highest death rate in the world. But I suppose in, in their defence, they would say, well, that's all very well. Um, but we also don't have a ruined economy. I think it's too early to tell with all of these kinds of comparisons, though, because we won't really know for every, perhaps until the end of the year how it's all going to pan out. I, I think so. And oh, this death rate comparison across countries, it's too early to mm. know. You can have to wait till the summer comes and gone, autumn, and then you look back and you look at the where was the blip in the death rate? Was it really due to corona or was it due to the fact that you, you have an older population mm. that has a natural death rate and you're just seeing that, maybe exaggerated by corona? Yes, indeed. And you put out a tweet yesterday, I think it was, um, the government will start publishing our daily recovery figures. Uh, you say that this uh, rolling out these stats is going to help. A lot of people have asked for these as well. And the government, of course, in their defence, have always said, well, they're available, but they just don't kind of announce them every day. Yeah, what we, we see on the tables at two o'clock, although they're always late now, uh, are the deaths of the previous 24 hours. And, and we see the new new figures for incidents alongside the number of tests done for it. Because it, the, to be counted as having corona, you have to have tested positive to the virus. That's easily done in a hospital, but mm. a lot of people have had corona in the community and never been tested. And the mm. more you test, the higher the incidence by definition. Yes. Uh, and tests have gone up. And I, Boris wants 200,000 a day. That's quite a tall order unless you industrialize the whole testing business. Mm. My wife's going back to help. She She's a nurse and she's going back next week. She's very thrilled about it. Yes. To go, to go testing people locally. And I think it, we're getting there. It's been slow, but we're getting there. And this is uncharted territory that we're in. So I feel sorry for the politicians uh, of all sorts. They don't understand the science and the science is complex. Yes, of course it is. And that's one thing we have learned, that there is no simple answer to any question in this coronavirus debate. Everything is nuanced. Everything has to have um, an explanation attached to it. You can't just go yes or no, can you? Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it is very complex. It's amazing to see the literature, the scientific and medical literature. Uh, at Christmas, there was not a single paper relevant to it. And suddenly, it dominates the world's mm. journals, the British Medical Journal, the American journals. All these journals are filled with corona papers that are instantly published within 24 hours. And, of course, because of the way computers work, they're transmitted around the world immediately. And uh, you, you get some very unusual things, like Mr. Trump wanting to take hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of laughable. Mm. I mean, his own doctors are saying, don't do this. And yet <laughs> here he goes telling us he yeah. believes in it. It's not a belief. You need to have the data. Right. Well, I must, I must admit, when it comes to Donald Trump, I think he just winds up the media now. He just says what he wants to say <laughs> in order to see how far the hair can actually run away from. Um, but let's talk about the testing scenario here. Adol has sent me a, a tweet asking if I would ask you how long testing needs to go on 
respond for? Because we do now seem to have a pretty good handle on the numbers of tests that we can do. Uh, I see that there's one um, high street um, pharmacy chain which is now going to sell an antibody test for about 69 quid. Um, and so, you know, how long would you say that the testing has to go on for? Uh, probably about three months until we're really out of it. And certainly for patients going to hospital, say for a cancer operation or to have radiotherapy, mm. we're going to do a test five, five to seven days beforehand and the day before to get the result to make sure they're virus-free as they come through the door to right. keep a, a COVID-free zone in the cancer centre. Yes. And the same for other critical areas, even cataract operation. You want to keep COVID out, basically. It is going to just fade away. It's not going to... And, and there will be the odd case. And one way of testing the staff of a hospital really cheaply is to do the nose swabs as people come through the door. Yeah. Just put them into one box and test for virus in the whole box. You don't know which patient, which staff member it's come from on the basis that many places, none of the staff will now have the infection. And so as long as you know they're all clear, it doesn't matter which ones. That, you know, if, if, the, if you suddenly pick up a virus in the butt, you mm. have to test them, go back and test them individually again. But right. Uh, that's called parallel testing and it, it saves a lot of time and money basically and it's mm. all doable. Yes and I suppose as far as the dangers uh, are concerned of this virus would you say it's right to then um, continue to isolate yourself if you are at risk if you are somebody in a vulnerable situation somebody with underlying health problems but for an awful lot of other people uh, perhaps they can be a little bit more relaxed about it? They can get out and about. And even for older people that are isolating because of medical reasons, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and going for a walk. You can just avoid crowds, avoid going to go to the shops, get someone else to go to the shops for now. But get out into the sun, get out and enjoy the countryside. Uh, and, you know, the real question next is can families get together with uh, other families? Yeah. Can you let you go and kiss your grandchildren? So my wife has done that surreptitiously. I right. hope she doesn't get arrested for it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for um, families, for this bubble mentality where you can have, say, a group of friends uh, or, and or family that you see on a regular basis. Uh, and, and if you limit yourself to that, and again, like everything else that we've been told, if you, if you operate in a kind of commonsensical way, uh, you're likely to be okay. Absolutely. And, you know, the rules are different around the world. So my daughter lives in Abu Dhabi. She's yeah. been there for five years with her husband, three small children. Mm. And they're allowed to nominate 10 people they want to mix with. So they've got their 10 best friends and their families who they can interact with. Right. It's curious. There is no scientific base for all this. It's just, it seems sensible not to get into a football match type crowd yes. for now. But that may come soon. And once this virus goes, I'd be surprised if we're football with live audience isn't being played in July this year uh, maybe with some controls about distancing mm. maybe half the audience rather than the, the normal uh, stadium full but uh, and the jostling and all the rest of it that will probably have to stop but uh, I think we'll get back to normal really much more quickly than the, the prophets of doom yes to think. yeah my sense is that first of june uh, is going to be quite a, a watershed mark really for the government because i think they've also got probably a little bit further ahead uh, than than we know they have because my theory and you may disagree with it uh, if you wish is that the, the government have actually been working on quite a lot more behind the scenes than they're telling us and that they basically don't tell us when they've got 
the ability to test, for example, and they make it a target, and then it looks as though they've actually done rather well to hit the target. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, don't set yourself targets you can't meet. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of society taking... The, I, I, I've got a birthday, not a very significant one, in June, and I want to go and have it in Milan. I've decided that the border's opening on the 1st of June. Why shouldn't I take a trip for the weekend just two or three days to Milan. So I've not bought a ticket yet. I'm just waiting to see if that's going to be possible. I don't want to be made to quarantine at Heathrow on the way back in the hotel. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because I'm trying to, like you, similarly uh, arrange a meeting with my daughter who who works not far from from yours in Dubai. Um, And we at one point were going to go for Paris because I thought, well, I can go to Paris and there won't be any quarantine when I come back. But it now turns out we're not sure whether there will be or not. So we're still kind of up in the air, as it were. I don't think quarantine ever be introduced in, in, in the UK. I think it's not going to be necessary. Um, Ab- uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, they do have quarantine now 14 days and it, you can't, it's not isolation. You can't go and stay with your daughter for 14 days and you can't come home within that 14 days if you arrive there. But I think that will change too. Um, you know, I, I couldn't go to my daughter's 40th birthday because of that. Yeah. So, uh, but I hope, and I've got my tickets, they've carried them forward, mm. and uh, I'll plan to go as soon as I can. Yes. Now, I've got a que- another question here that's just come in to me from, uh, from someone who wants to know about this rapid test consortium, because the government was very quick uh, to launch this kind of Roche-Abbott antibody test, uh, which they said was going to be available to everybody. Um, how's that going? Because nobody's been saying much about that since it's been introduced. So, people get very confused. There's two types of tests. First of all, for the virus, and that detects the genetic material of the virus, and that's a nose swab, and you see it in the car parks, and the nurses put yes. the swab up. The problem with that is often you don't get that much out because people are frightened. If they do it themselves, if they're posted their kits, they don't put it far enough up the nose because it's irritating yeah. to do that. So you don't get a good sample. Uh, but that's the nose test. The second one is a finger prick test to mm. look for the antibodies yes. which come afterwards, three to four weeks after infection. The trouble with the antibody test, it's very variable. What mm. was first hoped, it would give you uh, an immunity passport to say you've been, you've been, had the virus, you're safe to socially mix, you can go on planes and so on. But not many of us have actually gone positive. I'm negative, my yeah. wife's negative. About 10% of our staff, are po- we tested all our staff and about 10% are positive. Uh, it's not good enough to, to create a COVID elite, as the Americans call it, mm. the people that can just move around the COVID zones of the world freely because they're immune. Unfortunately, Madonna's one of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and the real problem is that there are other immune mechanisms that may be even more powerful than antibodies that essentially chew up the virus before yeah. it can get into the immune system and operate in the nose and the throat and the membranes at the back mm. there and destroy the virus there. And if you've had that, we're not using the right tool to analyse whether you're, you're immune. No, so, quite. Also, we're not entirely certain how long you're immune for, are we? I mean, it's not uh, entirely right. certain that you won't get it again. That's exactly it. Now, the encouraging thing from SARS, and this is just a SARS virus, SARS-CoV-2, mm. uh, as opposed to CoV-1, which is the original one from 2003, uh, with SARS, it, the, the, the immunity was long-lasting. So, uh, and it's not really troubled us. I don't, you know, I was a consultant in the NHS at the time in 2003, and we weren't troubled by it at all. I, yeah. I didn't really even notice it when I looked back in a, in a cancer department. Mm. We didn't have any precautions, uh, and we didn't take people's temperatures as they came through the door or anything like that. It just fizzled out. So 
will this do the same now? I suspect it might just do that. Mm. Well, let's hope so. The sooner the better. Professor Carol Sikora, thank you very much indeed. Former head of the World Health Organization's Cancer Programme uh, and Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham, of course, as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, the fastest growing radio station on the planet. There's a very good reason for that because we are the home of common sense. This morning, we had an exclusive interview with Nigel Farage, uh, the former head and leader of the Brexit party. He's been absolutely steadfast in his approach to this ridiculous situation of all of these migrant boats coming here illegally from France, now aided and abetted, by the way, by the French Navy, right? He told us that he's already seen this morning five boats coming in. They're being welcomed by the British Coast Guard. Uh, We're trying to find out from Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, precisely what she's planning to do about this. And we've been taking calls on it all morning. And of course, most of you, like me, are absolutely outraged that this is what's going on. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. We've got lots more to do uh, before we hand you over to Ian Collins at one o'clock. But here in the brand new studios uh, that we are loving right now, overlooking the Thames, we're going to be talking about tides because it's that time of the day where we do the homeschooling for all of you beleaguered parents out there uh, who are wondering what to do with the kids. They haven't yet gone back to school. Uh, Every day at 12.30, we bring you a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of time. So gather your children, get them around the radio, get them around YouTube, because we are now live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find us there, of course, as well. We're going to talk now, though, uh, to Steve Brace, Head of Education at the Royal Geographical Society, because tides are fascinating to most people. Uh, We've been talking about boats this morning. We've been talking about people going to the beach. Uh, Some tides are dangerous. Some are not. Steve, a very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. Really pleased to join you this afternoon. Listen, I'm delighted you could be here. Let's start off with a very basic question. How do ocean tides work? Well, let's start by just thinking a little bit about the Earth's gravity as, as a useful point first, and hopefully this will help with all the, uh, mm. the mums and dads and kids listening at home, because what gravity does is it pulls water downhill from mountains through streams and rivers to the sea. Right. And what we have with the ocean tides is really like that on a much bigger scale. And what it is, it's the moon's gravity, which pulls the waters of the Earth's oceans and seas towards it. And as, the, as part of the Earth faces the moon, the gravitational pull is really stronger there, and that gives us the high tide. Then at the other points, we have the low tide. And of mm. course, as the, as the Earth spins over 24 hours, that's why we get two high tides and two low tides over each pretty much 24-hour period. Right. Now, we're sitting here high above the River Thames. I can see the Tower of London outside. I can see the river if I, if I, if I sort of strain myself slightly. Yeah, so uh, and I live, I live just down river from here as well. And I've watched very often down by Canary Wharf the way that the Thames rises mm. and falls. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, it must be about a 50-foot surge uh, from high tide to low tide. And, and there's a boat that goes across uh, at Canary Wharf to, to one of the hotels. And basically, the tide sometimes can be so low that that boat can't even run. I think you're absolutely right. I think what what we often forget is, well, about half of the Thames is tidal. Yes. Right from Teddington through London, through the Meanders, past your office, under Tower Bridge and out to sort of Graysland. That's a tidal reach of the Thames. And as you say, it can reach about 54, about 70 or so metres. Mm. Um, and it's, it's that difference between low and high tide that makes a real difference on the Thames. And, you know, you can see it from your office and I think we've got high tide just after one o'clock today oh is that right okay and if you're still on air it's probably a colleague on air at 7 30 tonight they'll be able to see the low tide okay um, of the Thames and what does the Thames barrier do and are there other similar sort of devices like that around the world 
Yeah, I mean, the tennis barrier is really, really important for Londoners because what that does is it gets raised when we're going to have a really high tide mm. and there are spring tides and neap tides are even higher. And it keeps all that flood water out in the Thames estuary, out towards the North Sea, rather than allowing it to come up into, into the centre of London. And that would be absolutely disaster for us as a city yeah. if that ever happened. So it's a really important part of our infrastructure. It's been there for many years and it gets raised you know, frequently and I think we should all feel safe because it does so. Mm. And do other rivers have it i mean in, in other parts of the world yeah i mean you get you get the tidal elements of rivers whether it's the thames whether it's the amazon there's different features to them you know depending on how big the river is so whilst about half of the thames is tidal probably only about five percent of the amazon is tidal just because it's discharging or giving out so much water into into the ocean so mm. it sort of dampens down the tidal effect but you certainly get that in in you know rivers and uh, all the way around the world right and we hear a lot of course about sea level and about whether sea level might rise mm. or fall depending on climate change etc but what about the amount of water that exists in the world is it more or less the same I think it's it's about more or less constant. I think we know, you know, about 70% of the world's surface is covered by the oceans of the seas. Some of that water's um, outside the oceans and seas is trapped in, in big ice sheets in Antarctica and, and Greenland. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of the, part of the, just to do a bit more extra geography, but part of the, the issue of flood risk for us in Britain is both as the oceans get slightly warmer, they expand slightly and that raises sea levels. There's obviously... As the ice melts, that increases more water in the ocean. Mm. And what we also have in Britain is a few hundred thousand years ago, we were largely covered in ice, and that ice is now gone. And what Britain is now doing is it's sort of recovering from that weight being taken off, and that's twisting the country. So north, north of England and Scotland is going up, and that's tilting the southern bit of Britain downwards as well. So that's just increasing some of the levels of right. And, and well. obviously we've seen a lot of flooding, haven't we, in recent years in, in this country yeah. as well. And I know much of that is to do with some rather bad planning. Some people suggest it's because rivers don't get dredged in a way that they used to. Is any of it to do with the tides? I think certainly in coastal areas, um, you know, the, the, the flooding we sort of experience is either a mix of, you know, rivers flooding themselves and also tides coming up and mixing with high high discharge from rivers and exacerbating that. So clearly people in coastal areas, you know, just do suffer from sort of coastal flooding and you can see some of the uh, some of the erosion that happened in that recently uh, in terms of some of the uh, the erosion on some of the, the, the southern beaches and infrastructure and so right. on. So it's, it's a real mix of both depending on where you live. Okay. And I mean, as far as just the sort of the journey that rivers make, I mean, are they constantly changing in terms of the way that they they affect the environment around them. I suppose I'm thinking of the Amazon or the Nile. You know, are they likely to expand into different parts of the land where they weren't before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you wouldn't allow me to talk about geography without mentioning meanders and Oxbow Lake. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we have those those fantastic meanders we see every night on EastEnders from from the centre of London. They're fixed. They're all sort of you know they've got uh, barriers around the site and they're, they're not going to go anywhere but if you look at rivers in a more natural environment then meanders will move they'll create oxbow lakes and so on and in those sort of more natural settings you'll see lots of change happening around yeah. rivers, both in terms of their course their depth their flooding and just between seasons how much flows within them yes there's a fabulous oxbow lake which i went to last summer you'll probably know the name of it i can't remember exactly but it's right by beachy head um, there's a very okay. nice, very nice pub just on the edge of it, and you can walk out to the sea. Uh, you can see Beachy Head, and there's this amazing kind of marshland and Oxbow Lake, which has been created, I guess, over uh, over decades. Yeah, and I think one of the, you know, whether you're a child at home, 
or in school when we're all back at school or a more grown up like like ourselves i think one of the great things geography does is allow you to look at a landscape whether it's a center of london really built up or a more natural environment like beachy head and it just gives you that sort of background knowledge to better understand it to explain it and to probably want to know a bit more about it as mm. well yes absolutely well steve we all know now a lot more about rivers and tides than we thought we did uh, you're the head of education at the royal geographical society thank you very much indeed that's our homeschooling uh, for today Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.